0: CliffCentral.com.
1: Right, it is Thursday, which means we get to catch up on the big and important and uh, and meaningful stories of the week—the things that affect you, that affect me—and today we're going to be joined by two very special guests. who I'm happy to have on the show. We'll get to them in a second. We've got lots of ground to cover. What with the, uh, the 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 whole Russia-Ukraine situation, which is really dominating news at the moment, but also some local stuff, which is worthy of commentary also part three Pumi. you must be so excited of the state capture report i know you are because you read these things Pumi is the only person i actually know who reads these reports and um therefore she's invaluable in the show because she's doing it for all of us i mean there's no way we would right
0: and this part three actually needs a weekend because it's over a thousand pages
1: long oh my god (laughs) is this the big clanger this is the one that deals mostly with escom right Busasa. Busasa. Oh, my God. All right. Now we're in big trouble with this one. All right. So let
0: me
1: me introduce our guests for this morning. Um, I'm very, very happy to have him back. He hasn't been here for a while and we have missed his input. Uh, Returning champion, Mighty Jamie, a multi-award winning international debating and public speaking champion and coach. Mighty Jamie. Good to see you, sir. How are you? Jamie, can you hear us? Hello.
0: Doesn't seem like
1: it. Hello. Mighty Jamie.
2: Hello, Jamie. Uh,
1: all right. I'm an he's un- very scared. focused. Yeah, he's very he's focused. He's so focused Jeez, there, but he It's quite a, quite a scary. He's like looking at it. He's just staring us down. All right. Uh, Simpiwe <laughs> will busy. She'll get busy sorting that out. And let's welcome <laughs> Phil Craig in the meantime. Hey, Phil, how are you? You're not frozen, are you?
3: Uh, I I hope not. I hope not. No, I'm in Wellington. We're we're very rarely frozen in Wellington, for those that know the
1: area. Well, I mean, where you were located is particularly important when we talk to you, because Phil is, of course, a political and marketing strategist, columnist, political commentator, and uh, also an advocate for Cape Independence. So there he is with all the Cape Independence stuff in the background. It's good to have you on, Phil.
3: Thank you, nice to be back, Gareth, and uh, nice to meet Pumi. Uh, I'm just—I'm uh, actually in awe of your a thousand pages over the weekend, and wonder what what else. You? You're you not going to get much fun that weekend, I'm guessing. Well,
1: saying. you think that's impressive. Pumi also <laughs> read <laughs> Pumi also read your article on uh, Russia and the Ukraine, so she's been reading up a storm.
3: <laughs> Good.
1: All right, let's see if we can <laughs> get. I'm hey, doing? Jamie, can you hear us? Mighty Jamie, can you hear us? Hello. <laughs>
0: hello jamie now he's typing i think he's oh. typing a chat to tell us he can't hear us
1: okay yes? let me let me just see okay he says can't, he can't hear, hear us for some, some reason, reason. Uh, he'll join us all right pums uh let's get simpiwe on that one and in the meantime let's start off with what phil wrote about lessons from ukraine this is your article wait
0: so- before we start off with what phil wrote phil that's a very interesting accent you have there is that a Cape independent, I... ex-
3: independent <laughs> Cape accent. No, 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 it's not. It's become an independent Cape accent. But no, no, I, 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 w- I was born in in the UK, and I came to South Africa in my uh, in my mid thirties and settled here. So, uh, so, so no, I, I, I'm British by birth.
1: Hmm. Ah. There we go.
0: Understood.
1: So Phil wrote an article, and we'll talk a little bit about Cape Independence. I know that's your thing, and we'll talk about that Mm -hmm. just now. But um, you wrote this article about the Ukraine because you believe that the two topics are actually related, self-determination and imperialism. Obviously, these are words that get people fired up on both sides of the spectrum. The left are particularly concerned about colonialism and imperialism, and the right are particularly concerned with self-determination. So you're really St- crossing the, the the political divide there with something uh that you believe is a lesson we can all learn so tell me what you think of what's going on in the ukraine and when jamie's on i want to talk about south africa abstaining from the vote the the, the very significant vote that was made at the uh un this week but before we get into any of that give us sketch for us the background for this article
3: Sure thank you yeah look so I think it it was just really that point of interest so so for us as you, as you say in terms of of cape independence self determination is something that's important to us and we don't always use those words increasingly we 're starting to talk about self determination but sometimes although self determination in, in an international context is a, is a, is a re- rec- recognized and recorded human right, um, then sometimes the, in, in the sort of South African context it can be misunderstood uh, so we 're now looking in terms of the international uh, context but here in, in as the ukraine crisis unfolded and and i have to say i knew very little about the the history of of ukraine and had to sort of do a fair bit of background reading it was very it was very interesting that you fell into this that you know certainly at face value this was about the secession of two territories uh donetsk and, and luhansk um and they were pushing for self determination, and Ukraine didn't want them to have self determination. And then there was referendums that were held, and the referendums almost certainly weren't free or fair. But actually, the the results of those referendums were uh, were, were then used as a justification by Russia to to, to do what it's. And I have to state now that I think yeah, Russia's conduct is deplorable, and that there is absolutely no excuse for it for invading a sovereign state. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, let's not be misunderstood on that. Uh, but in terms of our context of self determination, what was interesting is that actually ukraine hadn't really been uh, hadn't really been playing by the rules either Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the interesting things in terms of of the ukraine is they've got a constitution that effectively prohibits self-determination so so in in the ukrainian uh, constitution uh, the referendums can only be called by the national government and referendums everybody in ukraine is, is allowed to vote so if you have a region of the ukraine that wants to wants to have some degree of autonomy it needs the rest the permission of the rest of the country which of course removes the word self from self-determination and uh, yeah, all of a sudden you have mm. parts of the Ukraine that have been denied self-determination and then actually in, yeah so and then you have this slightly farcical situation where Russia then invades the Ukraine to protect somebody else's right to self-determination and in doing so takes away Ukraine's right to self-determination mm. so it's just and, and I think we wanted to set up this parallel to say look Self-determination is the opposite end of the scale. Self-determination has been allowed to decide how you want to be governed yourself uh, and, 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 you know, the sort of the rules by which the society you live in wants to live – and imperialism is deciding for somebody else what rules they must be yeah, must live by. Right. And, and obviously that is, the, is what we're seeing in Ukraine. But in terms of, of coming back to the context of, of, of the Western Cape, yeah, there are a lot of parallels there. You know, you've got the Western Cape that wants to live by a different set of rules to the rest of South Africa. Uh, the ANC government has exactly the same argument as the Ukraine, which is that Cape independence is a decision for all of the people of the Western Cape and not just a decision. So they also want to deny the Western Cape self-determination. And actually, we must also understand in this context that Cape independence is the extreme end of this. And and, yeah, and in terms of self-determination, we're not really going to focus on today. I wouldn't really want to focus on independence per se. That would be our end goal. But there are much more practical things, I think. And I think there are probably two that are worthy of note. First of all, we have this terrible crime problem in the UK. We've just episode the UK. It's a terrible uh, crime problem in, in, in the Western Cape. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just lost another uh, commissioner of police, the sixth in a row, for, for, for some form of improper propriety yeah. um, crime in the western cape is completely out of control um, we've got a dysfunctional police force so the western cape government is desperately trying to get control of the police that the, the western cape government the da want to k- take control of the police in the western cape and, and manage policing differently and the south african government is refusing to allow the western cape self-determination it's refusing to allow the western cape to take control of the police force and manage itself even though that's what the people in the western cape want um, and another Another example is race-based policy. You know, the Western Cape does not want race-based policy. They want non-racialism as in the South African Constitution. Non-racialism is a founding provision of the South African Constitution. The Western Cape wants non-racialism, but the national government is forcing racialism onto the Western Cape against its will. Uh, and these are, the, and, and, and Cape Independence is the extreme solution to that, but just devolution of power, autonomy, federalism, uh, which is the dominant uh, political philosophy of the Western Cape. You know, at, at more more than sixty percent of the political parties are holding sixty percent of Great. the power in the Western yeah. Phil, Phil,
0: Phil, sorry, Phil, Phil, you, you're speaking at a hundred words a minute. Sorry, and okay. So many. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. If that's how you speak. But there, there's so many thoughts that oh. that you 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 you've just rushed through for all of us, and I have so okay. many questions. <laughs> and I'm just like. But making a just look.
1: before Pums, before we even go into in, because i do want to mine this a little bit more and there is a lot to to get into i just want to bring mighty jamie on because i know he he was having trouble hearing us in in the first two occasions but he's here now mighty jamie nice to see you uh, and great to have you back man and um, an award-winning and multi-award winning international debating and public speaking champion and coach and a return champion to the burning platform jamie it's good to have you on and um I, I, we just we kind of went straight into Phil because I was waiting for you to join. Can we, before we go into the the, the similarities between what, what you say is the Western Cape situation and maybe what you see in the Ukraine, let's just talk about the Ukraine and Russia for a little bit. And, Jamie, I know you've got some strong opinions on this. Do you want to throw that into the ring and then Pumi can come with her questions afterwards? Well, good morning, everyone, and I wonder if you can hear me just loud, fine. Loud and so, clear. Can, yeah, perfect. Absolutely perfect. great. Cool. okay
2: that's great that's reassuring um so i think for me looking at it from an african perspective i have to start off by pointing out that i was really relatively surprised by the discrimination that occurred at the border as people were seeking refuge in Pol- poland i thought that um the behavior of trying to say african migrants a lot of whom actually have visas that are valid in the Ukraine are working as professionals mm-hmm. they were being told that uh, we're going to help the ukrainians first and then we're going to get to you and that that's a story that began to uh, populate the social media platforms and Sorry, Jay, did initially did you say you
0: were surprised you were surprised I was surprised concerned you were not I was concerned
2: okay I was concerned and I was actually surprised as well to be honest because in the middle of all of this everyone is talking about Um, you know, freedom. They're talking about democracy. So they're talking about principles, you know, territorial integrity. And one of the principles which we have is one of the principles of equality of human beings. You know, that black people, white people, East Europeans, West Europeans, all all of them enjoy dignity inherently. And because they enjoy dignity inherently, they are equal in the eyes of other human beings. But it seemed that as people were exiting, Um, or or trying to save their lives, which is what refugees are trying to do. They have a legitimate fear of persecution, a legitimate fear of death, which is why they seek refuge. It's not necessarily about what is your nation state at the time that you're seeking refuge. There's an ongoing invasion. You think that your life is at risk, you wanna save your life. And the fact that African migrants were being told, go to the back of the line and they were freezing. And I think looking at all of that, it really um, showed me the weakness of Africa on the global stage. Um, Having said that, though, this to me seems like a contestation of a geopolitical nature and a contestation for the hegemony of um, global power, because Russia is making a move to reestablish its um, position as a geopolitical power. I mean, it's been doing that for a while um, when they assisted in Syria to prop up the Assad regime. Mm -hmm. That was a power play, one that pushed Obama out, actually and uh now what they're doing and this is my analysis of it is that um you know putin has had aspirations to reestablish some version of the russian empire for a while mm-hmm. and the reason why he chose to do it in 2022 was simply because a lot of the western leaders uh, are not in positions of strength in their home states so yeah. if you look at joe biden he's facing um uh,
1: Very low approval ratings. um,
2: Midterm, yeah, low, low approval ratings one and a blowout in the midterms. So if you're Putin, this is a good time well, to test that. Well,
1: I Americans. mean, I, I'm glad you brought that up, Jamie, because that's such a, v- a valid point. I mean, Putin's been saying he's going to do this for the longest time. And and unlike most politicians, he's actually done what he said. I'm not saying that he's an honorable man, but at very least <laughs> that puts him in a position. But he
0: doesn't bluff.
1: Yeah, he's not like everyone else in the Western world. who's like, bah, 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 but you never know what to believe, right? And Is there anyone in the Western world? We've got Boris bumbling around at number 10 Downing Street. We've got Joe Biden dribbling and eating porridge in his State of the Union speech. We've got Justin Trudeau uh, behaving like more of an autocrat than than some would say even Vladimir Putin has inside his own country when it comes to protests he doesn't like or people whose opinions he doesn't approve of. Who in the Western world is strong enough to actually go to Putin and be taken seriously? and 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 have the kind of balls that he had to do even though it's an awful thing as you and Phil I'm sure are in agreement that he's he's gone and invaded the ukraine it's 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 morally unconscionable what's what's happened but at least he's done what he said he was going to do which we can't say for any of those western leaders right is there one of them that you would respect if you were putin
2: well i mean the first thing i would say is that i think we just have to um you know be be careful of equivocating, you know. So what Trudeau did with the with the truckers and the bank accounts and the protesters, that was definitely draconian and not in mm. line with liberty. But it's, it's it's quite far removed from you know literally invading a country and uh, absolutely you know, uh, no, absolutely. Going to war. But 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 so, so I mean, it just degrees. But I, I take yeah, your point sure. that um, it wasn't. Um, but I mean, Justin liberty.
1: Trudeau, is, as you say, he's facing all kinds of opposition at home. Biden's doing the same. I think post covid uh, Macron is having a tough time too. There isn't really anyone and Angela Merkel's exited mm-hmm. stage left. So who do we have yeah. left? You know, who do we have left to, to well, kind of well, god and who's who's in who's in charge at NATO? Bunch of old old men.
2: Well, the it's interesting thing is that sometimes <laughs> it has. The interesting thing is that sometimes when you have a situation such as this, if you think even about like what is it? Survivor. Uh, a group of weak people can eliminate strong players if they bandy together. So I think Putin was correct to make an analysis that all of these leaders are weak for various reasons to draw Biden, Morris, all of them will go, and and, and the German chancellor who's very new in the position and doesn't have the experience and relationships that Angela Merkel would have had. But it does look as if they've come together, you know, to try to definitely have the last kick of the dying horse of Western powers, so to speak. So they have been as effective as they can be in terms of trying to push back without engaging in a military confrontation. And part of that, and Putin has been thinking about this for a very long time, which is why he chose Ukraine as one of his strategic um, points of attack, is that NATO cannot necessarily have legitimate grounds Mm -hmm. to um, get involved in the fights because Ukraine is not a member state. And at the same time, you always have to be worried about the risk of escalation to a nuclear level and he came in very forcefully he kept the nuclear option on the table and he has also anticipated sanctions and a variety of interventions and with the alliance of china he has been able to mitigate some of those risks so while there's a lot of reporting around you know these banks are sanctioned this these individuals are sanctioned this oligarchs um yacht got seized i think that putin has actually factored in all of these risks and is moving ahead knowing that so you don't... there's almost a realignment at this
1: point. so it's interesting you, know, you bring that up i'm sorry to to hug the the questions here i haven't spoken to jamie for a while so you you you're saying that none of these things are necessarily going to deter him so far um even though we know there's huge pressure on the russian ruble on the stock market um, there are there are there are groups of people at home. I mean, St. Petersburg has been full of protesters. You don't think any of that's going to deter him?
2: No, not necessarily. I think Putin is committed to this. Um, he, he came across as very committed when he made the public address, telling everybody that they won't even get a chance to blink. I think that, uh, mm-hmm. and when he's made addresses around, you know, activating nuclear options, he is is very serious about this and i mean russia is one of the, is one of the biggest chess playing countries in the world yeah. so i think a lot of these variables and scenarios would have been factored in already right. and because china is also on his side i think that what he offers them is a strong uh, ag- aggressor on the international stage while they can ascertain what is the risk of taking over taiwan but the game has definitely changed and last year China actually started flying um, its, its, its military aircraft into the t- Taiwan um, mm-hmm. the airspace. And th- they did so even though America tried to send its military uh, cruiser ships there to try to say, listen, this is a provocative act, but they did not um, stop. But in the early 90s, when China flew into the Taiwan airspace, uh, Bill Clinton sent some boats there and they de-escalated. Right. But right now, China has a- accelerated its invasion of the Taiwanese uh, military airspace. All of this indicates that right now, you have China, which has its eyes on, on Taiwan. You have Russia, which has its eyes on several territories, which it views as being part of the Russian nation Federation. state legitimately, even though there's a debate about that. But right now, even if you were to say to Putin, we're going to take this steps," But also, critically, the banks that are involved in the, the gas economy have not been sanctioned. They are not out of swift. So uh, Putin also knows quite well that everyone is actually depending on him. And we, we all see the footage. It's, it's snowing in, mm. in Europe. And, 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 you know, everyone who are standing in those lines rushing into Poland has to supply heat. They have to get enough right. energy for heat. And so Putin chose this particular time um, with specificity, strategically, and with a high level of deliberateness that I think we have to factor in as much as we assess uh, all of these sanctions and other measures that have been taken.
0: Garrett, why are you showing
1: me? Well, because I'm sure that you have uh, lots to... Uh, we've, we've laid the table. We've laid the table here for you, Pumi. Now you can eat. Phil's Phil's told us Phil's told us his story. Uh, Jamie's told us his take on the thing. Um, and I know you're brimming over with questions. Plus, I've hugged the first couple of minutes. So go ahead.
0: Goodness, I don't know where to start. I don't know whether to start with mighty Jamie's surprise. at something that was so obvious. Um in terms of how migrants would be treated at the borders. <laughs> African migrants are always treated that way, no matter where mm-hmm. they come from. And, you know, when we saw the reporting, I don't know why people are surprised or shocked at all, actually, because this is this is what we get, well, right?
1: This is what we get Pumi, for you've also, leaders in Africa. You've also been to Russia, and, and let's not pussyfoot around this i mean uh, russia is not a country that uh that knows a huge amount about black people or or is particularly well known for being um all
0: they don't even see them they don't see black right. people I, I i told you the story when i came back from russia but i i, I mean i think it's I think it's silly to be surprised that people would be treated that way. I think it's silly to be surprised that the feedback that we would get from all sorts of media, left and right media, is, oh my goodness, all red, country in Europe. This is the kind of thing that happens in like, Backward places like Africa. And I'm like, what the hell? That's, that's, that's absolute rubbish. And I mean, I think it's a, it's a perfect place of convergence with, with what I wanted to ask Phil earlier, just in terms of when you did your research. And I, I I love the fact that when you started your article, you were honest about the fact that you didn't even know where these territories are or Mm -hmm. what they were about and you needed to do research. So I'm, I'm interested to know how far back your research went. You know, when did, when did you start? Because, you know, I've spent the better part of the past 10 days doing a lot of reading, not just about that region, but just about conflicts in Europe. So I'm interested to know where you started, because I think that you have a very narrow view of what, what the war is about or why it's happening.
3: Well, in all honesty, I think the article is less about the war and the article is about self-determination and imperialism. So, so effectively, we're using the, the Ukraine, uh, the current situation, which, which at face value is over exactly these issues, to discuss the concept of self-determination. So it's, in terms of research, then, yes, we've, you know, we've spoken to historians and, I, and, and, I, and I've got a good overview of the situation, but I, but I don't claim to be uh, an expert on, on, on you know, Eastern, Eastern European history. Uh, you know, I understand the basics. Our issue is around the right to self-determination, which is is a recognized human.
1: But let me me ask a question then, Phil, because to me it's all about zooming in or zooming out. You don't have to know a lot about the Ukraine and Russia to know that self-determination is an issue for people if you zoom in enough. For example, here you're saying that the people of Donetsk and Luhansk, Mm -hmm. for example, are looking for self-determination from the Ukraine. But the Ukraine is looking for self-determination from Russia, if you zoom out further. So it's not clear who the bad guys are here, the here, who the good guys are, if you, mm. if you don't mind me pointing that out.
3: No, sure. Well, look, and I, th- and I think that was the, the, the crux of the article, that actually at some point you have to go to principle. Uh, and I think from, from our, our position here, we're saying, look, uh, yeah, self-determination isn't a nice to have. Self-determination is, is, is a founding provision of the, of the United Nations. It's guaranteed in the covenant of civil and political rights. It's in the, it's in the, the constitution of the, of the African Union. It's in the constitution of South Africa. Um, and self-determination is something that, it, that, is, that is critical. It's critical to avoid conflict. Um, yeah, you know, it's critical that people have. If you want to have meaningful democracy for people, and you want to recognise people's human rights, then then self determination is something that that, that that is important. And yes, just as with with all, yeah, like with the right to freedom of speech, for argument's sake, that yeah, you know, there, there are going to be uh, 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 conflicts within that right, and there's going to have to be yeah, you know, there have to be common sense. And I think in, you know, if we look at ah, Ukraine, then but, both then then the, the Ukraine itself absolutely has the right to self determination as a sovereign state, and so. And so do that so, but so do people and communities within the Ukraine. But this and actually is... those rights have to find a way of coexisting. So let's but let's zoom let's
0: zoom back into South Africa then. Let's zoom back into South right. Africa and your premise in the article being around South Africa and that the Western Cape and there are two parts which which I come to understand as your premise for why self determination is the reasoning that uh that you would call for a referendum and therefore a secession of the Western Cape. Sure. And the first one being that South Africa is a unitary state, which is blatantly incorrect. We're not a unitary state. I mean, it's in paragraph 40.1 of the Constitution. All the provinces have legislative executives and therefore are able to make decisions for their provinces. It's the reason why the, Cape, the Western Cape can have the DA you know, and it's the reason why democracy works. is in order to be able to have a responsive government, people are allowed to vote provincially, nationally, locally, right down to a municipal level. And all of those areas have got an, an interdependence, yes, but also they have their own executive, own legislative executive that allows them to make decisions. So if I I, I mean that is a flawed premise to begin with.
3: Well, no, I disagree with you uh, that South Africa is. What is a What do you quasi- disagree with?
0: That the, the, the constitution Afri- says we have an, a, legis- a provincial legislative executive. Is that what you disagree with?
3: No, no, I don't disagree. It's, South okay. Africa is, is is what's called a quasi-federal state. It has the appearance. By of whom? Federalism. Uh, but, but well, in terms of the definition, if you look at the the, the 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 definition of a quasi-federal state, because whilst we have got provincial leg- legislatures, uh, they have very very limited powers. So the people of the Western Cape. So let me t- let's take the Western Cape first of all and say the majority of Western Cape voters, since 1994, so for three decades, the majority of Western Cape voters have never been governed at a national level by the party they vote. They actually are, are, uh, and they live under ideologies and policies which they object to, but they have no way of ever uh, being governed in the way that they want to be governed. The Western Cape has the the national (laughs) policies... That no, is
0: an the oversimplification. Truth. That is an oversimplification.
3: It's not, it's a fact. fact. It's a, it's a, it's not a, it's not an oversimplification. It's an absolute fact. If you go and look at the IEC data, you will see that the majority of people in the Western Cape have never been governed by the, gov- the government they elected, uh, that they voted for, uh, and they, and they re- realistically have no prospect ever. And actually, you've got a I situation now.
0: I need you to give me numbers of what the majority, so the, the no, DA but, but just, for the past okay, okay. two voting seasons has been in, in power in the, sure. in the Western Cape, right? And so I need numbers, I, need, I, 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 I don't want us to talk kind of like...
3: But the ANC, vote, the, the ANC vote peaked at 44% in, in the Western Cape, so there you go. So, so they've never had a majority in the Western Cape, even though they've been the national government for 30 years. In the, in the last elections last year, the ANC got 20.4% of the vote. Uh, and actually, in in the in the uh, last uh, uh, national elections, they got 28.6% of the vote. But the ANC is is dictating policy to the Western Cape, and the and the provincial government you're talking about is actually fighting for control of the police. And the national government is saying no. They want to get rid of race-based policy. The national government is saying no. They want control of transport. The national government is saying no. The people, yeah, we are, in, in the Ukrainian crisis, the, the Western Cape government lit up its national assembly in yellow and blue in. Some support for the Ukraine, and, the they national, uh, whilst, whilst, and they were the allowed to do that, and they were allowed to do that. Nobody came so, and shut
0: them down from doing that. They were no, but, allowed to do that. Okay, but it's so, not. Just hold like on. That. So hold on. Can can I ask you a question? So each province, each yeah. province, and this is this is what interrelated is about, right? Is each province has a mirror we have a three-tier system in this country and each province has a mirror of what the national government is like so there is an MEC for safety in the western cape right and that person is responsible for the budget of safety in the western cape that person is a da appointee so what is it that they need permission from the national government to do with their budget I think that's why I'm saying to you that I think the premise of your argument, the premise of your argument is based on the fact that you believe South Africa to be some kind of quasi-federal state, whereas the government as what it is, what it is based on our constitution is not that.
3: Okay. I, I disagree. Uh, How hard,
1: guys? Can I can, I can I just bring? Okay, let me bring Jamie in because he's got a couple of questions, and I, I also don't want us to get stuck in the idea of um, of, of devolution of power, and, and because I, I know Phil, this is your thing, and and I, I will give you another chance to you know to explain your position and kind of have the argument about Cape independence, but there are other things that people are talking about right now which seem to supersede this uh, otherwise luxury uh, discussion. Um, in, a, in a time of necessity. Jamie, you had a question and, and I'm happy to bring you in on this uh, and then we can move on.
2: Yeah, so t- just two things actually. Number one is that when we think about the context of anybody seeking self-determination, we also have to be aware of the history and that history is relevant to assessing whether or not those claims are legitimate. So this is just to engage Phil's article a little bit because number one, the people who are Russian-speaking in the Donbas region were put there basically by Russia in two different periods. Under Catherine the Great, there was a period of exclusion of, um, you know, um, Ukrainian, uh, ethnic Ukrainians and the inclusion of um, Russians into that territory for the purposes of uh, pushing ahead the Russian colonial agenda. And then secondly, there was uh, uh, a genocide which occurred called the Holomodo, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, where millions of ethnic Ukrainians were, were, were basically died. And that population of Russians came into the territory. So the Donbas region actually has a troubling history in that the people who are there now um, wanting to uh, separate and rejoin Russia are actually um, there as a result of a very, very... Uh, I think, illegitimate set of actions, one, a genocide, and two, uh, forced expulsion under Catherine the Great uh, in in, in the 19th century. So that begs the question that if they seek to have, um, you know, an independent state from the state of Ukraine, are those claims necessarily legitimate? Is the historic claim that Ukraine has on that territory extinguished? by the actions which were taken by Catherine the Great and Stalin and several other uh, Russian emperors over the course of history. But going uh, going to the second level, I'm just curious, and this is the question that I wanted to ask. I've heard a lot about, you know, um, racialist policies coming from a national level, which the Western Cape doesn't necessarily want to implement. I- I'm curious what those are. And I'm curious, what specifically about policing does the Western Cape government want to do that is different because the issues of policing are interrelated. Number one, we all know that there's a lot of gang violence in the the Western Cape. Western Cape is one of the murder capitals of um, South Africa, actually, in the Cape Flats and, 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 and in several townships. So what do they want to do that is different? And number two is they are socioeconomic drivers of crime. When you have low levels of education, when you have low levels of welfare support, things which the Democratic Alliance can do now, when you look at the metric results, the Democratic uh, Alliance-led Western Cape doesn't actually do much better than um, the ANC-led provinces in terms of education. In fact, uh, the Gauteng results had more uh, bachelor's passes over the last five or six years than the Western uh, Cape. So I'm Jamie, curious around the socio economic stuff. Yeah. I, I, what are they going to do differently when they're independent?
1: I, I don't want us to get lost in the weeds here. So I'm going to give Phil a chance. I know. I know. To, I'm just, I, yeah, just yeah, 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 yeah. And and I understand also that this stuff does need context. And you know, just before you answer, Phil, because there's quite a lot that Jamie's asked you here. um with self determination, like I said, it's a question of zooming in or out, depending on you know what you what you want to look at as independence. Because what if you know a municipality in the in the Western Cape decides it wants to declare itself a sovereign state? How seriously must we take that? And and then the same goes for history. You know, if we're starting to look at Catherine the Great, and we do need to have context for these things. That's seventeen eighty. Um, th- again, people zoom in or out of history just like they zoom in or out of geography. In order to strengthen their narrative. This happens in every argument, and that's why these things are not necessarily intelligent discussions. If all we're doing is cherry-picking, you might be for the Cape Independence Movement. Jamie might be for an argument against whether or not Luhansk and Donetsk are really Russian-speaking areas. You know what I mean. It's all kind of academic when you start doing this stuff. So go ahead. The uh,
0: only thing that's permanent in politics is interests. That's the only yes, thing. Friends and enemies change. Correct. So it's really about looking at the self-interest of the people and what they are propagating.
1: So, so go ahead, Phil. But uh, the holistic
2: history is relevant. You know, we, we can't forget that holistic history. Absolutely. No, no, no. Uh, by, 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 by no means, as an Listen, you
1: I'm not criticizing Phil or you, Jamie. I'm just saying that. These things zoom in or out and the whole story changes very often. So go ahead, Phil, you, you, you need a chance to answer these questions, go ahead.
3: Sure, there's, there's a few there. So look, f- first of all, I, look, I, I agree a whole lot to you Gareth. I think, and I think if we, if we look at that article that I've shared, you know, we are arguing for the principle to apply and to, to not be applied selectively. That's actually the thrust of the argument. That you can't pick and choose when you apply the principle, depending on whether it's politically expedient or not. And we're arguing that the right to self-determination is, is an absolute right. Uh, and, and actually, it doesn't really matter uh, wh- wh- you know, wh- whether it's your team or the other team. You actually have to apply that principle fairly and equitably. Um- so, so I agree with that, and I'm glad you picked up on the historical context. Of course, historical context is important, but it can't possibly uh, be more important than, than, than using the, the, the popular experience of lived experience of the people who are in that region now. They are the people who are alive today. They are the people who have got a right to self-determination. They have a right to democracy, and actually that isn't negated by something that happened that was done in the South African context. This is absolutely critical. There's something that was done by their forefathers centuries before cannot negate the right of people who are living here and now in in whatever territory it is, which includes South Africa. in terms of of what the da want to do with the police so let's bring that back to to to, to the specific points that that is kind of up to the da the argument here is that the is that the the da is is the duly elected government of of the western cape that the the, the, the there clearly is an issue with policing in south africa and it's and it's fine to just say there's a national competency but the but the south african police service is in disarray there's yeah i don't think anybody can argue that we can look at how many people are being fired yeah how, just how 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 uh, appalling the level of service on a, on, a, on a yeah if, if we if we have global comparisons is so something dramatically has to, to be done and the, and the western cape is the murder capital of south africa uh, yeah it's, it's not it's not one of it it's the worst and um, and you've got a situation where the western cape government saying is look we understand what goes in non-western cape mm-hmm. uh, we want to have control and deal with these specific issues we don't agree with the way it's been policed at a national level and the national police are incompetent we've been elected in the in the in the provincial elections on a mandate of having more control over the police of having oversight or well, more than oversight having control of the police in the western cape we want the power of policing devolved from national government to provincial government and they have been democratically elected on that ticket so so so, that, so therefore they must themselves say what they want to do with that power but actually clearly yeah. they believe that they can hang on a second, clearly they believe that they can, imp, they, can they can improve mm-hmm. policing now actually what you've got and in the meantime they've gone and set up these other set this leap officers have actually gone and recruited uh, their own police force, um, which is assist, and and they've had great success with that. And now, and we've had a debate of that in the National Council of Provinces. And the the uh, the, the Western Cape government is asking for the budget to be right. vol- devolved so they can police. I'm going to I'm, I'm going mean,
1: have to I'm mean, going have to just close this discussion. As no, I know you have got a sure. ton more to say, Phil, uh, sure. but but I think we're all agreed that policing is probably more of a local issue than it is a national issue. So even just on the basis that if any of us were running the government we'd probably want police to be decided within neighborhoods within communities within municipalities long before the national which is
0: why was. we have provincial police commissioners
1: yeah <laughs> who yeah.
0: are accountable to the premier but which is why we have but, metropolitan police in cities but, who but are accountable to the, the mayor
1: the, but at the risk of sounding really insensitive i i don't believe that Okay. <laughs> the reason I've gathered all of us here this morning is to just talk about policing in the Western Cape, so let's look at the supra situation for a moment. Let's just you know kind of go go zoom out as I said earlier. South Africa didn't vote at the u n in this this move against Russia. What do you all feel about that do you Do you feel that oh well, that's what we expected from South Africa? Is it clear that Russia is the bad guy here and that we should have voted? With the other countries. There's an interesting point made by Kanthan Pillay, who's often on the show with us, about. I the, just saw the, that. Did you see it, me, The populations of the world. He I reckons if it was a show, a show of hands in terms of the population of the world, 43% would have voted against Russia because most of those countries that voted in abstention or against are actually the most. popular or didn't show up. Or didn't show up with the most populous countries. Um, so there are lots of things to discuss here. Jamie, do you see a clear. Good, bad situation, do you think South Africa acted appropriately?
2: Well, I think that this vote exposed the tension that was already um, below the surface, because if you recall, the Department of International Relations came out very strongly saying that, listen, uh, the sovereignty and territorial borders should be respected. And then Sunday Times started reporting that Cyril wasn't very happy with that. And then um, we had the Minister of Defense attending a Russian event uh, celebrating a historic moment, some soldier ceremony. And then um, just after that, the ANC released a statement seeming to be leaning towards the Russia side in as much as it was trying to de-escalate the Nadezi Panda uh, a pro- approved mm. statement. So I think South Africa is part of BRICS. There's, there's Russian money that has been taken by South Africa. Uh, and the relationship that the ANC has with Russia is a historic one and one that um, isn't the ANC does pay a lot of heed to its historic alliances around the world. People who supported the apartheid struggle and all of those things. So it's not a simple thing to say to the ANC led government that uh, votes uh, in favor of Ukraine, because currently the Western Bloc um, is, is pursuing that agenda. And as much as uh, Mr. Ramaphosa was, you know, with the G7 and, you know, very, um, you know, cordial and, and and, you know, affectionate with them in the pictures last year, there's still a lot um, of historic attachment uh, to places like Russia, strategic attachment. Being a member of BRICS is is not a a trivial uh, thing. So that vote, I think, was very inevitable. And it actually shows that the geopolitical considerations in terms of um, which is the hegemonic state and um, what is the power balance on the global stage is very much in flux. And countries like South Africa being able to resist um, you know, the pressure from the West actually just does show that China and Russia have created a rift in the geopolitical balance of forces. So as much as you had these 140 something countries, you know, uh, taking the, the line, the abstentions were very significant and um, the no's also was significant, of course. So I think we are in a moment now where the West will have to go back to the drawing board and really think about the dynamics of, of of their influence on the global stage and i think another thing is that some of the african states may have voted um you know um against russian uh, aggression but they are very much under the control and influence of china so if you were to extrapolate extrapolate that a little bit further you would actually see that not only in in, in population terms um was it a refutation of um, the western control but also some of those votes below the surface were just uh, they were yes votes, but they were they were effectively abstentions if you pay attention to um the dynamics
1: well um phil do you do you feel that South Africa voted appropriately by abstaining, or is this, this an, another kind of moral cowardice?
3: No, I think it's—I think moral cowardice, exactly what it is. I think it was—it's a question of of putting your your national political interests uh, above an important principle. Um, so, no, I'm disappointed, but uh, but not entirely surprised. I think South Africa on the principle that one country has invaded another uh, should sh- sh- should have stood against that. Um, and uh, you know, and, and the, the, look, I accept there are issues. I don't think any issue is is, is entirely black and white or right mm-hmm. or wrong. Um, and I, and, I, and I think there's far more nuances in it than just good guy, bad guy. Uh, but, but clearly in a situation where, where one country has, has uh, yeah, invaded another and attacked its, to- its, its uh, territorial sovereignty, uh, that should have been condemned.
1: Pums, what do you think? Because you and I were having a conversation about this in the first hour of the show and it seems to me like Sa-
3: South
0: Africa is stuck.
1: Yeah, we, 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 we... I
0: think South Africa stuck between between the West and the East, right? And it's, it's kind of like they are not sure where their best interest lies. So it's easier to just kind of be in the middle and and say, uh, I'm not going to say anything on this one, because South Africa historically has had Russian support, has had a lot of support from the East. And today it has a lot of support from China and part of BRIC. So they don't know if they must all out, say where for Russia, Russia is right in what they're doing. Because when the Eastern Bloc fell in 1990 they made a decision to jump to the west and that's why they were able to enter into negotiations and and that's why that's what ushered in the new south africa that we live in now so and and now the west is looking a little bit weak they have friends in the east even though they want to be with the west that's why cyril ramaphosa showed up at g7 and looked so chummy with everybody but this pull on both sides keeps them keeps them unable to make a decision. And unfortunately, I think that even the whole world is stuck in this vicious circle of East and West and where the power lies well, at any one as time. Jamie but said... But power it, is being disintermediated now. Absolutely. The power has moved. It's no longer East and West, guys. Yeah. And I think that well, we could, we technology could, has changed all that.
1: We could maybe do a better job of not looking like we're making it up as we go every step of the way and just like... You know, falling over our own feet, which is what the Department of International Relations and then later the presidency had to rectify because we can't seem to be able to speak clearly, even if it's within government. Forget about without. There may be many people in this country who are pro-Ukraine, pro-Russia. Who knows? Um, And there may be all kinds of reasons that we should be one or the other. But the fact that our government cannot speak with one voice about this just shows you how completely ineffective the channels of communication in both the Department of International Relations and the Presidency seem to be, and how they 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 seem to be working in different directions so much of the time. It's embarrassing to see this, and I don't know how many countries in the world take us seriously when we have something to say about Russia or the Ukraine. Because as to as we discussed at the beginning of the show, poems, we had a lot of moral capital once with mbeki and and Nelson Mandela. We had a lot of um, international sway, and we were regarded as a country that could speak. With uh, authority, if not authority, certainly with morality and with with a, a set of principles that the rest of the can- the rest of the countries in the world probably were a little bit envious of it, at a certain point. That's not there anymore, and we seem to have squandered a lot of that. What do you guys and we say? Have a
0: president who can't call his cabinet to order? Absolutely. I mean, he is the president for crying out loud. He needs to set the tone for what I would. Our international policy is, what, yeah. you know, where are we going as a country? And he's unable to even just pick up the phone and say to Naledi Pando, hey, again, yeah. you're out of line on this one.
1: <laughs> right.
0: The hell! In, well, instead, we, we hear it through the newspapers. We see it you, reported you, you know, in the papers. This is
1: something we've spoken about with Cyril a million times. He he doesn't take the initiative. He tries to get everyone around the table and con- re- reconcile everybody. It's you know it's his background. So, guys, let's talk about the state capture report, which Pummy's is the only person who's going to set aside a weekend to read. But Jamie, uh, Phil, are you guys excited about the state capture report at all? Is there anything in there that you're looking for particularly? And. What do you think will happen after this? Because it's part three of three. Jamie, you go ahead first.
2: So I think the first thing is that I think the the state capture report um, is not going to see a lot of implementation um, because of the number of people who are implicated. And um, the further you go down the the rabbit hole, the more you see the immoral, unethical relationships between companies, between politicians, between the state and all of these deals that were made. So I I think that um, it's going to be useful more in two respects. One, uh, thinking about structural reform. I don't think you'll get a lot of that structural reform whilst the the ruling party is the ANC simply because they benefit from the status quo. And number two, I think it's going to benefit opposition parties because they are the ones who will be able to go into these four volumes if it's going to even be four and point out the nexus of... um, Relationships between, like for instance, consulting companies, accounting companies, um, you know, all of these uh, different high net worth individuals who are playing the lobbying game or the political IGS game for benefication of their own businesses and themselves. So I think that you will see all of the opposition parties will be able to extract different points to point out. But I think as an exercise in accountability and an exercise in getting some kind of, um, you know, retribution, if you will, we're not going to get that necessarily simply because even now the ANC is speaking about how they're going to try to deal with this, with with the Integrity Commission, as opposed to, um, through the prosecutorial arm. Of course, there's a lot of rhetoric about how the, pres- the state prosecution will follow through on this. But we know that um, all of the stuff that is in the in the, in the Zondo report is not necessarily admissible in a court of law. You have to almost build up your evidence file from scratch. And that's going to be part of the problem. So I think as an exercise, um, a lot of people are going to feel that the one plus billion that was spent was not necessarily well spent because you do implicate Zuma, but he's on the outside um, of the political space. He's basically now, you know, in retirement. And all of the people who are he's active He's on medical players, parole. He's on medical parole, but also like, he's, he's, <laughs> he's like... I don't think he's going to be a major player in politics for the next 10, 15 years, but all of the young people who are major players currently on the chessboard or on the soccer pitch or on the rugby pitch, if you will, those people are not going to be uh, facing any prosecutorial outcomes as a result of them admitting that they took loans from certain entities, that they took money from Bosasa or whatever the case may be. So if everyone who's on the board can still play the game uh, unfettered, um, I think that you have to question whether or not it was worth the bang for buck. But I do think that opposition leaders will be able to build a case around how the ANC holistically has been implicated, how catered deployment is a problematic policy. Whether or not they've already proven that case and this doesn't necessarily help them, it is a different debate. But I think it maybe gives mm-hmm. more ammunition to say, we um, already told you that these things don't work.
1: Phil, what do, you, what do you think? Are you, are you excited about this uh, third part of the state capture report? Did you even bother with the first two? And, and what, do you think we, what do you think we will learn out of this? I mean, the, the, a lot of the stuff we've seen in action as we've actually watched the stuff unfold in front of Judge Zondo. But um, do you agree with Jamie there won't be any real action from this?
3: Uh, sadly, I do. I, look, I, th- I think what we've got here is I think the state capture report is an absolute damning indictment uh, on, the, on the ANC and, and the government of South Africa, which has been the ANC since since 1994. And I think what this report has done is, is, is it's kind of put some flesh on the bones and exposed the, exposed the truth. But it's a truth that we've all known. It's every one of us n- understands that the ANC is corrupt to its very core uh, and actually our system is, in, 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 as a function of that, is, is, is broken. Um, and actually, but what's happened is in, in, the, in the whilst state capture has been going on, then people have still had to decide which side of the fence do they, do they fall on. And actually some people, doesn't really matter what evidence they're going to be presented with, are going, to, are going to end up still backing the ANC. And we saw even at the end of the state capture commission in the local government elections, that the ANC may have got a, a bit of a bloody nose in certain places, but it was still by far the largest party with more than double the votes of its nearest rival. Uh, and, and that is not just a damning indictment on on, on uh, the ANC government. It's a damning indictment on the South African electorate. Um, and I don't mm. think anything is going to change. We're not going to see mass prosecutions. We're just going to see business a, a, as usual. Uh, we are starting to see uh, a, you know a restructuring of, of South African politics, and that's a different discussion. And this will probably accelerate that. Uh, but we aren't going to see people in, in, in orange jumpsuits. Uh, we aren't no. going to see the ANC fundamentally change Sadly. course. Uh, we aren't going to see the start of this alignment of South African politics, uh, but uh, but every, everybody's known what's been in the State Capture Commission for, for years, they, they, just some of them want to deny it. I think that
0: what on. we are going to see is we're going to see a rise of private prosecutions. and Besides the fact that we have a Sakadija, we have an Afro forum that goes after certain things we're going to see a rise in private prosecutions mm-hmm. uh busi uh busi mavoso of business unity south africa has been on a very big road show i mean i think they also had a she also had a meeting with shamila padoy just in terms of what the private sector can do to support and help uh see some prosecutions come to light after mm-hmm. the state capture report uh, I, there was a report two weeks ago actually about the fact that over the past five years including the state capture commission government has spent something like 1.5 billion rands on legal fees so there's still going to be lots and lots of very rich lawyers if you are in the legal fraternity there is a boom happening currently and it is going to continue for a long time
1: that's why they have all those that's the why they have capture all those reports. brand new buildings in Santon, right pumi
0: absolutely <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and i think what 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 the state capture commission reports also give to the south african the gift that the report is for south african politics is for a clever strategist in any one of these opposition parties and it allows you to shoot fish in a barrel essentially because you're able to pick strategic spaces that you would like to make an impact in recruit people which is what action SA has been doing specifically for those areas. And you can, I mean, we can learn a lesson from Putin. I told you guys last week that when Putin first came into, as he was rising up the ranks before he even started his own political power party, he, he fired 2000 people and hired a whole lot of his own uh, sympathizers, a whole lot of people who have mm-hmm. the same mindset as him. There's an opportunity. I think, for opposition parties to be strategic about the way that they tackle what's coming in the next election.
1: Right. So uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, America, for whatever it's worth, is still the country that calls itself, you know, the hegemon or certainly people, political analysts have been calling it that for the longest time. Something, again, you referred to earlier, Jamie, and their president uh, was was making a State of the Union speech uh, just a couple of couple of hours ago a couple of days ago yesterday um and there seems to be no discussion around this at all of course for him uh, and he is going through a very very difficult time he's only been in office for a year and i cannot imagine that even the the most sympathetic democrat in the united states is able to find enough things for him to boast about in his first state of the union and he was meant to be the antidote to the craziness of the trump era um there's a damp squib and its name is joe biden But luckily for him, along has come a very convenient war, which can be used to distract people. How cynical am I to expect that Joe Biden's State of the Union speech would have been anything but Russia and the Ukraine when there's so little to boast about domestically? Or am I being unfair? Anyone can go in on this one. Who wants to go first?
2: Well, I don't think the war is going to help him much in terms of the midterms. I think a lot of people view his response to not have been maybe as robust as other leaders um, Mm. that have uh, held the seat before. So I think he's still going to get a tough, uh, what is it called, the share lacking um, in, in the midterms. And I think that the inflation and the fuel prices are still going to, um, be uh, the economic factors that increase the resentment towards him and push down on his popularity. And I think the party, the Democratic Party is going to suffer some tough, uh, you know, midterm results. And and I really think that as much as, you know, Biden, he did, you know, make uh, these references to standing with the people of Ukraine and all of that. I really think that this is not going to be a war that can salvage um, his presidency, I think, he's di- disappointed a lot of core constituents. If you recall, um, black voters were critical in getting him into the presidency, but he's not been able to effect any legislation in their favor. But you know, right now, the anti-Asian hate bill has been passed, and that's something that um, African Americans look at as okay, we were your priority constituency. You know, Clyburn uh, was critical to mm-hmm. getting you in and pushing away uh, the Sanders vote. But we have gotten nothing to show right. for that. And maybe a Supreme Court appointment is a symbolic appointment and an overture that I'm trying. But I don't know that it's enough of an effort at a street level where African-Americans can say, yeah, you've done something for us.
1: Hmm. That's an interesting take. Uh, Phil, do you have anything to say about Joe Biden?
3: no look i i'm not a big follower of, of, of american politics if, if i'm honest but i but i perceive joe biden as the anybody but trump candidate mm-hmm. um and uh, yeah he was always going to be holding the seat warm for whoever comes next uh, but i mean he, he clearly is he's not a strong president and uh, you know yeah I, yeah I i can't i i, I don't think he's got a, a bright future ahead of him let's put it that way
1: i don't i don't think he even knows where he is most of the time put me any anything from you on this
3: <laughs> you know
1: i, I mean he I did call the people of ukraine did call the people of Ukraine the people of Iran (laughs) unironically
0: no don't 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 underestimate what damage that Afghan war has done to the psyche of Americans about wars in general right so I think the American people currently have no appetite for any war and unfortunately a big war is what their economy and most of europe's economy needs you know that's they need a war because that that war machine is such a big money spinner on many fronts you know and and has a long tail in terms of the people that it benefits but they don't have an appetite for it and i think unfortunately for sleepy joe
1: this, sleepy joe <laughs> <laughs> right. and you, he, he,
0: this is not going to this, this is not going to bode well for him. It's you me, you
1: mentioned you mentioned the long tail, but that tail sometimes wags the dog, and that was a brilliant movie that I think opened a lot of people's eyes to just how cynical that whole industrial military complex in America is, and how politicians Whoa. use it to their advantage.
0: Absolutely, and I mean, yeah. if we if we look at what what's happened since in the past twenty four hours. 24 maybe 72 hours there is even before the 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 vote you know mm-hmm. the un has made a decision to send troops and weapons into the ukraine
1: yeah
0: britain is sending uh military and arms Obviously, they're sending the arms not as a gift or donation. They're sending those arms at a cost, and they've agreed to loans. For The Ukrainians are going to find out exactly how expensive it is to engage (laughs) in war, but even more expensive to have friends like Britain and America Uh because those loans (laughs) – Loans have interest, yeah. loans have interest. This is what the British learned uh, this is Churchill well documented what Churchill learned after World War Two, what the cost of America's help in the war was yeah. lots of loans
1: right <laughs> so, well we are we are living undoubtedly through um through some turbulent history here and and you can't say that the last few years have been boring. I mean, maybe one day we'll all have stories to tell our grandchildren, and if we live long enough, our great grandchildren. But when people look back on these three years with Corona, with this current situation in Russia and the Ukraine, with the madness of American politics, and even here in South Africa, I think they'll have plenty to talk about. Uh, It's always good to have you on, Jamie, and great to see you again. Thank you for your contribution this morning. And Phil, it's always good to see you too. I will give you the opportunity to talk more about Cape Independence, because I think there are probably a lot of people who want to hear more about that. And meantime, thanks for your bit today. Pums, we'll see you next week. Cheers, everybody. Bye-bye. Cheers, Gareth. Cheers.
3: Bye. Bye.